the curmudgeon rock report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for the rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. And here we are again on another voyage of their curmudgeon rock report, uh, which is the, uh, depending on how you want to look at it, the least refined or the most refined podcast in all of rock nerddom. Uh, but we definitely appreciate the fact that you're here with us uh, tonight and uh, here for another installment of Prince versus Michael Jackson. Arturo, uh, what are your thoughts there from Guangzhou, South Korea? I'm representing from Minneapolis. Not only are we doing chapter three of Prince versus Michael Jackson, and I'm the Prince guy, I'm wearing a Husker Du t-shirt, arguably the greatest rock and roll band to ever come out of Minneapolis. And, and this will make me the first person in the history of uh, the world to ever say, yo, I'm repping for Gary, Indiana. universe uh here uh in the parallel universe uh there's never any cloudiness the skies are always blue the grass is always green and we meaning uh your curmudgeons are the tastemakers uh who gets on the radio uh who gets to fill the stadiums uh who uh, do we revere as artists well we get to dictate that here in the parallel universe obviously in the real universe nobody cares about us and our indie musings. Uh, so <laughs> we have much more power over there than we do here. On that note, Arturo, who are you espousing here in the parallel universe this week? Yes, they are a young Canadian band called Kiwi Jr. Kiwi as in the fruit. <laughs> but I, I, but I, I, think, I think they're really naming themselves after New Zealand because back in the early to mid 80s, New Zealand had a pretty vibrant indie rock scene and these guys are very influenced by that. But anyway, despite that, this band, file them under Children of Pavement, or, <laughs> or at least Children of Stephen Malkmus, since uh, their sound is kind of more in common with the, the clarity and the cutesy quirkiness of Malkmus's solo stuff. So basically take solo Malkmus, particularly his Naughties solo work, and mix it up with the twee jangle pop of Bell and Sebastian at their most upbeat. <laughs> and you get a good idea of what Kiwi Jr. sound like. Um, their most recent album is called Cooler Returns. It came out this year and it has a few great songs on it. Namely, uh, the really kick-ass sing-along pop rock of Waiting in Line, which in the parallel universe would be a huge single. And there's another good song on it called Guilty Party. So if you're a Spotify person, check out those two songs by Kiwi Jr. from this year. However, 
it's their debut album from 2019, Football Money. That is the much stronger album. And it's a better entry point into what I call the the charms of this whimsical Canadian band. Uh, standout tracks, you get the bouncy pop and amusing character sketch of the single Leslie. You got this really lovely, languid, kinks-esque mid-tempo song called Come Back Baby. And then you have this really almost lo-fi garage rock crunch in this uh, very guided by voices-esque uh, Wicked Witches. So um, it's summertime. And if you're looking for bouncy, breezy, witty pop rock with an indie rock sheen, and indie rock what it used to be, by the way, not that overproduced, glossy, synthy shit that passes for indie now. Um, if you want good, breezy, smart, witty pop rock, you can do just fine with Kiwi Jr. Kinks-esque. If, if anybody can ever have that descriptor thrown at them, that's a good thing. Um, yeah. That it should be the aspiration of any uh, orthodox uh, rock pop band or, or sort of that fits into that pop profile. Yeah. Uh, if your ambition is not to be kinks-esque, then yeah. you got to step up your game, man. Well, I mean, it, it, any indie, indie rock slash jangle pop band, they have to have the kinks in their DNA. Even the Smiths had some kinks in their DNA. You know? Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, yeah, I could see Morrissey as being a child of, of Ray Davies or like an indirect, maybe yeah. a second cousin of Ray Davies. Uh, yeah. You know, the same kind of uh, uh, the British angst. Now, granted, Ray Davies was much more of a, uh, uh, not tongue-in-cheek, but the sort of the uh, the more upright, uh, satirical uh, yeah. view. Whereas, yeah. yeah uh, the only thing satirical in Morrissey's canon is Morrissey himself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, this is going to be, a- this, this is a man who published his, his, his memoir, his autobiography with Penguin. And he requested that the autobiography be automatically slated in the Penguin classics section. <laughs> his autobiography. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, well, it's interesting because most of the time, you know, Arturo and I will uh, go back and forth about the Smiths or Morrissey. Um, I just, for whatever reason, I just have a natural aversion uh, to uh, Morrissey. Maybe it's because all the- I've seen it happen in other people's lives, but now it's happening in mine. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that, that has become like the, the single best promotional clip for this podcast is Arturo doing a wonderful impression of Morrissey. Uh, generally speaking, though, we do disagree about the Smiths and Morrissey. I've never really gotten it. Uh, and maybe, again, that, that might have something to do with the fact that people I didn't much care for in high school were big Smiths fans. <laughs> and so it's just sort of a, a natural prejudice that I've never gotten over. Uh, well, anyway, so that was a little bit of a, uh, uh, a veer uh, from the path. Uh, Kiwi Jr., uh, I definitely uh, can see uh, why you would uh, be big on them for a lot of the same reasons I would be. Like I said, they made me smile. So now let's talk uh, a little bit about uh, my artist in the parallel universe this week. Uh, We go from young Canadians uh, named after New Zealand to uh, a Nigerian uh, descendant. Uh, He's a British rapper. 
Uh, his folks were uh, from Nigerian and Nigerian immigrants. Uh, this is a 23-year-old kid. Uh, he goes by Dave. And uh, Dave is one of the hottest uh, rappers in uh, Britain right now. And he is a Mercury Prize winner, uh, won the Mercury Prize in 2019 for psychodrama. And there's such a thing as the curse of the Mercury Prize. Yeah, uh, it really is. The, yeah. You win that award and, and you never heard from him again after that. <laughs> yeah, and but it looks like uh, because uh, Dave's next and newest record, his second full record just came out a month ago so far, uh, it looks like he may uh, avert uh, that fate. Uh, the name of the album is We're All In, We're All Alone in This Together. And, and let me just say that one more time because it's not as much of a mouthful as it sounds. We're all alone in this together. Just take uh, away one word and it's the Nine Inch Nails song. Yeah, I was gonna, <laughs> yeah, I, I was gonna say, uh, I, I like that we're all alone in this together idea. That's, that's, that's really, and it's apropos of, of what Dave is about. Now he's 20, like I said, he's 23. Uh, he's got that, that immigrant uh, background uh, in Britain, but also because he's so young, you're starting to see this with pop starlets of that age on the white girl side of, of things where they're starting to embody Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and, you know, their heroes that for us, you know, blink. And here we are 14 years later and it's like, what happened? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for these kids, uh, you, know, you probably have all realized that the older we get, uh, the more likely we can do a year standing on our head. But when you're, <laughs> when you're like 16, a year sound feels like it's forever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so here we are. Uh, Dave is really a descendant of Kanye West, uh, Drake and Eminem. And you really two, hear two, that. Two out, two out of three ain't bad. Oh, uh, well, I don't, like I said, Drake, uh, Drake can be insufferable, but the best of Drake is pretty good. You know, Drake actually does have a shtick that uh, I think does matter and does uh, help uh, move uh, the rap idiom along. And so Dave, he is an accomplished piano player. Uh, he, uh, he's he got two brothers in prison. Uh, his father was deported uh, when he was a kid. So he's been through some tough things. But generally speaking, he's more of a middle class kid than a ghetto kid. And he has this approach of almost monologia in his, in his music. He uh, very with the piano, uh, with spare beats, sometimes a cappella. Uh, he goes through these five to 10 minute long uh, exercises and they're designed as confessionals. Uh, he's got a lot, again, he's got a lot of that Kanye sense of grandeur. He's got some of that Eminem uh, ability to uh, hook onto his identity and engage in some identity politics. Hmm. and to uh, extend uh, narratives uh, from that well. And so uh, he, again, uh, right now, uh, this album is the top-rated album on Metacritic for this year. Uh, hmm. Take that with a grain of salt, as we had yeah. talked about a few episodes ago when Arturo was ripping Wolf Alice, a new asshole, uh, <laughs> that you know this new generation of uh, British critics not only can they write, but they're, they might, they can't write, but they might as well just be fanboys. 
So take it yeah. with a grain of salt, but I could see why they're big into this record because there is a, it's not even a hypnotic effect. Uh, earlier this year, you'll remember on this podcast that I spoke about an album by a guy named Getz. Uh, and Getz is a little bit of an OG from the grime scene. He's pushing 40. He's a contemporary Dizzy Rascal. But he had this album called Conflicts of Interest. And so here we now have another uh, great uh, uh, British rap album from this year. Uh, it doesn't necessarily come from the same well. That one was very Caribbean-influenced, uh, very hypnotic. Uh, this one is more emo is not the wrong, right word. Uh, R&B is not necessarily the right word, but it's more of this uh, pointive, uh, tuneful, spare, piano-driven, almost balladry. Uh, he doesn't sing. Uh, you would think he'd sing. Uh, if does he, he, sung does, does he Does he even rap? He raps, uh, yeah, he, he and he raps very well. Uh, a lot of hip hop artists now they they really can't rap. No, this guy can rap. This guy can rap his balls off. Uh, he he's very very good. Uh, the album closer of this record is called Heart Attack. It's a ten minute song, but he's got a period in there where it goes on for about two minutes, where it goes acapella, but he really stays, uh, you know, in his cadence and is really inventive, and he gets even more aggressive and more intense uh, while he's doing that. So this guy's a very talented rapper. I mean, honestly, I, I, I've i never heard of this guy until you mentioned him to me. I mean, I'm, and, and, I, and I'm pretty much on my uh, on on my hip-hop. But the thing is, unfortunately... Mojo. Is, yeah. Uh, Mojo doesn't do very well with hip-hop. They, 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 they don't spend enough time on hip-hop and heavy metal, and they spend way too much time on folk music. Which tells yeah. you a lot. Which tells you a lot about their demographic of the demographics of their writing staff. Cheesy, well, yeah. cheesy corny white people. <laughs> yeah, and not only that, but most of their writers these days are probably in their fifties. Uh, yeah, an old, yeah, an old friend of mine, Chris Nelson, I believe, still writes for them, and he's probably what fifty one, fifty two, and so yeah. you're talking like older white guys right now. No, but but they have some younger people. They have people in their twenties and thirties. At least, at least thirties, at least, at least thirties, uh, writing for them now, and still, it's just like I, I, I wish Mojo would turn me on to more really cool new hip hop, and it doesn't. Yeah, it kind of pisses me off. Then at the end of the year, I gotta go somewhere else. Okay, what good hip hop came out this year? Because sure as fucking hell, Mojo didn't tell me anything about it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> and which is a surprise. This is now the riveting, uh, epic award-winning third installment <laughs> of our of our series chronicling the parallel careers of the two titans the two male titans of 1980s pop now in the last episode we covered that early to mid 1980s period when michael jackson became the biggest pop star of all time with thriller the biggest selling album of all time and prince matched his cultural influence with the pioneering classics, the one-two punch, if you will, of 1999 in Purple Rain. And he also became a Hollywood superstar with the movie Purple Rain. However, while Michael starts to crack under the pressure of his, basically his addictions, excessive vitiligo, skin treatment therapy, plastic surgery, and morphine, <laughs> Prince becomes a prolific marvel with a, uh, hit albums and singles year after year. Now, on this episode, for all you 
millions and millions of curmudgeon rock report fans out there. Uh, we will follow Prince and Michael's career trajectory toward the end of the, of this epic decade that made their respective legends. As far as Michael Jackson goes, he releases the monumentally successful bad. He tours the world. He goes all multimedia with captain EO. Uh, but intense media pressure and speculation start to unearth some serious closet skeletons that will haunt him forever. As far as Prince goes, he releases a career-defining classic and one of the greatest albums of all time in Sign of the Times. He dives headfirst into soundtracks. One of them is one of his five best-selling albums and the soundtrack to one of the most successful movies of all time. And the other is a not-so-successful soundtrack to a not-so-successful straight-to-video movie that he unfortunately directed and starred in again. <laughs> yeah, it, this is an interesting... Yeah, that, that's that's one way to put it. Uh, yeah, piece of shit, uh, but, we'll, but we'll definitely get to that. It's in, This is an interesting period, I think, for both Michael and Prince uh, here in the late 80s, because what they're doing is they're coming off of absolutely monumental, enormous, universal, colossal, unbelievable success. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, in Michael in 1982, all the way through 1984, and then Prince, that one-two punch you said, 1999, Purple Rain, uh, you really can't get much bigger than that. And so what do you do after that? What we find is, is that uh, they really, in a way, kind of be, get the freedom to do really what they want to do. And they have this newfound freedom. And it really kind of manifests itself in the work from here. Uh, you know, Prince had, uh, had a pop vision. He got there. And then when it comes time to him, for him to do what's next, he kind of retreats to the studio and effectively starts to reinvent himself, uh, which I think is pretty fair because, you know, sign of the time is just stunning. I mean, it's just, let's tear everything down and tear and, and build it back up. And then with Michael, uh, Michael is going through this period where he's, like you said, he's starting to get all of this pressure uh, and scrutiny. And uh, he goes from being charming in the media's eyes to weird and this is, you know, after the whole thing with the oxygen chamber and buying the elephant man's bones and, <laughs> yeah. you know, the friendships with Liz Taylor and, you know, uh, riding around with Emmanuel Lewis and, and doing all, all of that. And so there's this uh, sense that he was un had a lot to say. He was mad and he was at the point where when you make that much money and you're that successful, you don't have to answer to anybody anymore. And so he essentially goes into his singer songwriter phase or is allowed to, uh, ain't nobody going to be writing for Michael, uh, after thriller. Uh, right. So he's got that, uh, through the encouragement of Quincy Jones, as I understand it. And so you've got sign of the times, which is about as, uh, experimental singer songwriter, studio genius as it gets. And then you've got Michael's album, Bad, uh, where he largely dictates the sound of it. And he wrote all but two songs. Uh, that, that's, all, again, when I defend Michael Jackson, I always say, 
he's not just the amazing dancer, amazing singer and media icon and fascination. Uh, he's also a really brilliant songwriter. Not anywhere near as prolific as Prince, but he is a brilliant songwriter. And uh, we will go over that in detail here in a little bit. The 1990s were the fourth golden age of rock. I'm stealing that term from Arturo because I wholeheartedly agree. It's a perfect way to describe the era. Why do we make that argument? Find out soon. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will be basing an entire series of episodes on the topic, from Lollapalooza, the good kind of shoegazing, and grunge, all the way through to EDM, Mook Rock, and Napster, we'll cover the spectrum of a beautiful, incredible span of time where everything changed, at first for the better, and ultimately perhaps for the much worse. What defined the 1990s for you? Let us know at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. All right. Now we're going to talk about Michael Jackson in the late 1980s. Chris, I got two words for you. Captain EO. Yeah, Cap- Captain EO. And so yeah, so this is uh, to the run-up. Now, obviously, his third uh, uh, hit uh, record in this uh, real solo phase of his, this is the post-Motown uh, solo phase of his, is bad. Now, before that, he spends a couple years. He does We Are the World, uh, and he does some other media ventures, one of which is Captain EO. Uh, anybody who doesn't know Captain EO, all you have to do is do a YouTube search for Captain EO. It'll come right up. So this is Disney uh, and George Lucas and Michael Jackson all looking as a way to use each other to bolster the other one's image. And, and, to and make a shitload of money in the process. And make a shitload of money in the process. And basically, uh, it's, it's, it's a Disney puff piece. And it's really, really funny, and it's charmingly goofy. I actually don't think it's bad. It's just, you know, you just have to take it with a grain of salt. It's not anything that was made for pure artistic value. It's like uh, sci-fi Fraggle Rock. Exactly. That's actually really, really, really good. It is sci-fi Fraggle Rock. And so it's Michael as Captain EO, who's the captain of some spaceship that's manned by a bunch of cute, puppets and <laughs> including what basically might as well be a gerbil with wings, like a fat, a fat gerbil with wings is, is kind of the star cutesy uh, one uh, on the ship. And Michael wears this fabulous white, it's, I guess it's a spaceship, but it's like a, if Liberace was and or Johnny Versace was uh, basically designing a spacesuit for NASA <laughs> That's, it's kind of what it would look like. It's it's real heavy in the shoulders. It's real heavy in the knees. But uh, man, uh, it, it, it's pretty striking. And so it's this idea of, of Michael as the as the uh, space captain uh, ends up on an exotic planet. There's some sort of like nonsense plot where they're going to save somebody on somewhere on some planet, or maybe a princess or a witch or something like that. But it just essentially it starts off as uh, spaceship adventure comes into s- some quick boom, boom, bang, bang on a planet and then turns into like thriller without the zombies. <laughs> it just turns into a big uh, song and dance routine with two songs. It's like a yeah. two song video. Now here's the thing. They were able to get George Lucas to co-produce this thing and to co-write this thing with Francis Ford Coppola. 
Oh, God. Yeah, imagine that. So Coppola directed this damn thing. George Lucas co-wrote it. And the story uh, credit on this thing, uh, it says, uh, when you see the, uh, the closing credits on it, says, based on a story by Walt Disney Imagineering. Well, now, thank, I, God, thank, thank God Prince didn't write it. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, the, the thing about Captain EO is at least you can let it off the hook because no one involved thought they were actually making art. Everybody knew they were just making they were just making some bullshit 17-minute promotional yeah. video to be used at Disney. Uh, it would make Michael look cool. It would riff off the, the coolness of Star Wars. Uh, at, at that point, maybe it just gave Francis Ford Coppola something to do. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He was... I mean, he did Gardens of Stone the next year, but then he kind of fell uh, off yeah. the relevance track pretty quick after that. Um, yeah, yeah. After Apocalypse Now, his career was done. Michael, after Thriller, not only did he kind of usher in an era of corporate sponsorship of uh, big tours with the whole deal with Pepsi. We talked about that last episode right. where right. Uh, Pepsi sponsored that tour and it led to that, you know, hair uh, accident when they uh, did the commercials. But here you also have this explicit connection with Disney. And so you get this sort of corporification, if that's a term, you get this sort of corporification of, of rock and roll starting here in the mid eighties. And this is part of it. Now you've got George Lucas and Disney involved with Michael Jackson. And so yeah. that, that's worth uh, mentioning because you know, MTV had broken out five years earlier and you remember Miami Vice and stuff like that. Oh, is oh, yeah. So you get this sort of convergence of pop cultural sources and influences and resources and medium all coming together for the purpose of like selling soda and selling tickets to amusement parks. And let's not forget rock and wrestling. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, ab <laughs> ab ab absolutely. This is uh, uh, one, one of the other great minds. This is an era that's dominated by like Don King uh, George Lucas, uh, and Brandon, McMahon. <laughs> Brandon Tartikoff, and Vince McMahon. Uh, as uh, some of you might know, and we've made several references, that the curmudgeons, not only are we rock nerds, but we're also wrestling nerds. You know what that there makes? Is a rest, there is a wrestling music episode coming soon down the pike, by the way, ladies yes. and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, there is, which uh, we, <laughs> we definitely will get to, which will be a lot of fun. Uh, so... If you ever want to know about Randy Savage's uh, hip hop career, uh, come back come back to us soon. It's one of, but, the, one of the best albums ever. What are you talking about? It, it actually is. Uh, tell you the truth, <laughs> I, I I love it. But now, come, focusing back on this episode, uh, I, I just find my my favorite part of the whole Captain EO thing is the fact that it's based on a story by Walt Disney Imagineering. Which and I don't know too much of the background is, but I can't help but think that that's probably what they called their marketing department. <laughs> mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but it is actually, and we'll talk about this next. It actually is a pretty good precursor to Bad because one yeah. of Bad's better songs is featured in Caffeineo, uh, another part of me, and mm. uh, which is a fascinating. Well, let, let, let's get into it uh, now. Uh, yeah, for first, sure. First, your thought on bad, and then I'll talk about bad. My thoughts on bad. It's a really good record. Um, it's, do I think it's one of the greatest albums ever made? No, it is not. Um, it's a good album. 
Uh, actually, I, w- I would say it's it, 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 it's it's kind of a great record. It, it's it's there are some amazing songs on there. The album produced five number one hit singles on the Billboard pop chart, which is a, which is staggering. I don't think any album has done that since. I, I I could be wrong, but yeah, I mean, so it is a really good record, and I like it quite a bit. I don't think it's one of the best albums ever made. Um, like you mentioned earlier in one of our private conversations, you know, you, funk is really strong going through off, 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 off the wall. Funk is very present in uh, Thriller. There's very little funk in Bad. And for a guy who is, as you've said, like one of the best baseline creators ever, <laughs> not, not having funk on your album may not be a good thing. Um, that yeah. being said, yeah, that you would, you would think it wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. But, but there, but there are some good songs here, but here's my thing on, on bad is that all the huge hits it had, you know, bad, the title track, um, the way you make me feel dirty, Diana, smooth criminal man in the mirror. Um, all those songs, the, I think there are only two songs on this album that have actually endured as timeless Michael Jackson classics that people go back to. One of them is Smooth Criminal, which has, not surprising, a funky bass line. <laughs> and The Ballad, which he co-wrote with someone else, Man in the Mirror. To me, those are the two songs that have endured from Bad. Uh, the others, not so much. I've never liked Dirty Diana. I always thought that was kind of a crappy rock and roll song. Well, um, it's it, well, creepy lyrics too, so it's probably yeah. a good thing that it, uh, it, yeah. it fell by the wayside. Uh, I, 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 bad, bad, bad is more remembered for the Weird Al Yankovic spoof. Well, yeah, I mean, and which which is perfect, you know, ham on, ham on, ham on whole wheat, uh, yeah. yeah, which is which is good. Here's my, and I think you're you pretty much hit it on the head that um, bad is basically Michael uh, doing what Michael wanted to do at that time. Uh, you know, I said Michael, you know, the shackles were off. And uh, he was going through a lot. And from what I learned and researching this record, he actually wrote three or four albums worth of material Hmm. and originally wanted to release it all. (laughs) And I think it was either Quincy Jones or somebody from the label that said, no, dude, uh, just keep it the one album. And and so uh, somewhere in there, uh, Michael, I didn't realize this. Michael might actually have vaults. Most of that stuff is probably never seen the light of day. Uh, I know that there are a couple of B-sides. Uh, I know that they released a 25th anniversary version of Bad in uh, 2012 that had some, some quote-unquote B-sides. And right. uh, one of those songs called Change the World is yeah. in uh, Captain EO. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, so nine of 11 songs are written by Michael here. Uh, so it's the funkiest guy alive doing mostly not funk. It's <laughs> It's rock. It's balladry, it's uh, bubblegum pop, I mean, you know, sort of the, uh, I guess you could say the way you make me feel and I can't stop loving you, or I just can't stop loving you, or basically right. bubblegum pop songs, right? Uh, you know, that are done for that. To, I think it's narrower, by the way. You said that oh, there's only really two songs that have stood the test of time. I would say there's only one, because, hmm. look, guys our age will remember Man in the Mirror, but if you talk to anybody under the age of 30, uh, they probably only remember Smooth Criminal, and there's a reason for that. Uh, alien you know, Ant Farm. Well, yeah. It, well, there's Alien Ant Farm that did a cover of that, that that became a hit, but it's just also 
you know, it has one of those things of, of being kind of a kitschy song in itself yeah. with, the, with the concept. And not only that, but also it's one of the greatest videos in the history of, uh, of rock and roll. And I think the video also has endured uh, as well with uh, Michael and uh, the other dancers in the uh, sort of the suits. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, the gangster suits and doing that crazy thing when apparently Michael actually uh, designed and invented and, I believe I have to double check this patented the shoes that he's wearing in that video. Oh, wow. Where it's like a triangular heel that then connects to a contraption on the stage so that when they do that, that bend over, yeah, you know, like that lean over thing that he can do right. it. And so he invented the shoes and the contraption that, nice. were, that make, that make him do that. And so again, it speaks to Michael's work ethic uh, that this is essentially his album uh, again, there's a lot of paranoia. Uh, there's a lot of uh, revenge and a lot of sort of uh, him as the tough guy uh, coming after the world. Uh, it's interesting <laughs> that, you know, we talk about him as a, hide your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hide all the kids. Hide, you know, you don't have to you don't have to hide the women. He don't care. Hide the kids. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but and that's the thing. There's no. You said it before. He's a master of bass lines. Uh, the most prominent bass line on this thing is the worst one he ever did, which is bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's just the cheesiest bass line in the world. Uh, but the one it's, for, not, it's not that bad. I mean, I don't know. I think I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's all I right. mean, well, I mean, the the little guitar part is, is more, uh, you know, is more uh, interesting uh, than that. Same thing with Smooth Criminal. Actually, whoever was playing guitar for him on this record, and besides Steve Stevens, uh, Steve Stevens is the uh, was Billy Idol's uh, guitarist. He plays all over Dirty Diana, uh, but like Smooth Criminal, Bad, uh, the way you make me feel, a really strong rhythm guitar going on on those records. And so, mm. rhythm guitar is more prevalent on this. Uh, synths are more prevalent on this. And then, from what I understand, they spend an awful lot of time putting together the drum sound. On this. Mm. It's definitely, you know, synth, synth drum and uh, drum machines. Uh, and so it's a much more electronic record than the other two. I mean, you see this where uh, Off the Wall was basically a pure, purely acoustic and purely normal instrument record. And then by the time you get the bad, there's almost no, with the exception of the guitar, there's almost nothing real. Michael uh, discovers Depeche Mode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I guess you could say that. You said it before. It, it's kind of the of the three. It's the lost album, but it did. I just checked. It did show up at an 194 on Rolling Stone's uh, latest rendition of the 500 greatest albums ever made. It's not too shabby. Yeah, which is not too shabby. I think that's a little overstated. Um, I think it really is a great record, uh, but I don't think it's that great. Uh, for what it's worth, Thriller was number 12 on that list, and Off the Wall was number 36. Yeah, uh, I think number uh, personally, I think off the wall belongs in like number three or number four. I think Thriller <laughs> probably belongs at thirty six, <laughs> and then I think Bad uh, goes uh, down uh, down from there. I remember, you know, when the album first came out. Again, it was a huge success. Uh, yeah, five. I mean, a, lot, a lot of that was because of the, the momentum of Thriller. And the oh anticipation, yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, it was the anticipation and you know the media stuff he had done then. And so it was this huge event. Um, another theme of this era is that seemingly all of Hollywood's great directors wanted to work with Michael. 
the uh, the video for Bad uh, was directed by Martin Scorsese, and uh, you know, obviously, and it was probably the first time that Wesley Snipes comes into anybody's consciousness. Yeah, yeah, this as, is before New Jack City. Yeah, yeah, before New Jack City, before Major League, actually, right. which is you know Willie Mays Hayes. That that's my favorite rendition of of, of Wesley Snipes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so uh, one thing that I would say about this, and so five number one hits, which had never been done before, not including Smooth Criminal. <laughs> Smooth Criminal yeah. was not one of the number five. Yeah, uh, was, five, I, I, five I, number ones. Me. I, I thought that was a number one. Nope, it, it peaked at number seven. Uh, huh. And so several of the number one uh, songs, including I Just Can't Stop Loving You, basically are lost. Uh, yeah. Nobody uh, cares about those anymore. Man in the Mirror, once in a while. I think will come up. Uh, I remember as a kid, I loved uh, that song, but I will say this in listening to it again, it's clearly one of the ones that he didn't write because it just sounds different. Yeah. Uh, He, his vocal performance is orthodox Michael and not Mm. sort of angry, growly, sexy Michael. Right. Which is what he's doing on the rest of this record. So he plays that straight. It's got the, the most gospel harmonies, which is something that he would do. Like his harmonies were usually pretty strong on the other couple records. Uh, and at that point, I could see why he would want to have sung it because I think he was going through a lot of that. I'm looking at the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his way. So I think it had a very personal uh, uh, tone for him. But you can even just tell it's Quincy Jones probably uh, is solely responsible for the arrangement on that. Uh, and it's Michael kind of, I won't say phoning it in, but Michael's like, ah, this shit's easy. And so it's kind (laughs) of like just Michael doing a Michael, uh, a Michael fold. And and so knowing what I know now, uh, just being for as much of a Michael fan as I am, I did not realize that he wrote almost that whole record. And it's, it, Mm. it is a, that is Michael Jackson's record of where Michael Jackson was at the time. Which I mean, it's, it's, it's not surprising. I mean, by this point, he had learned so many lessons with off the wall and thriller that come on, you know, yeah. it should be expected that he should be able to do this on his own at this point. Yeah. And from what I understand, Quincy Jones, the research says Quincy Jones said, dude, you know, you've got a lot to say, you should say it and yeah. encouraged him to do all his own writing. Uh, so, uh, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, another one of those lost classics, by the way, that uh, I don't think it, it charted in the top 10, but uh, deserves, some praise is leave me alone. Mm, uh, yeah. Great song. And uh, one of, one of his best videos too, it's a very funny video where he's kind of goofing on his tabloid coverage. Right. And so the video, basically it's, it's almost like a photo collage type of thing, but it depicts him uh, riding on a roller coaster while he's surrounded by, by headlines and like, you know, uh, yeah. a, a still photo of bubbles, the chimp and, uh, you know, still photos of some of the other weird shit that he was associated it's, with. It's, and, it's, it's, it's a very heavy handed video. It's just Michael Jackson whining and bitching about, eh, people won't leave me alone, even though yeah. I wanted to be the biggest pop star ever and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, I know. It's, uh, yeah. You know, Michael, uh, for as much, you know, his public personas, he had several public personas, one of which was the, the gentle, ah, isn't everything wonderful? And then yeah. he had the kind of the whiny, nobody will leave me alone. But yeah. behind the scenes, nasty motherfucker. Uh, yeah. You know, he uh, incredibly ambitious, uh, incredibly cutthroat, uh, hardest working man ever. Uh, there's a quote uh, that I saw. Second hardest working man ever. 
Okay, well, okay, he's right up. Okay, there's there's three of them: James Brown, Prince, Michael Jackson. Arguably, maybe in that order, maybe not. Uh, not, as pro- order. not as prolific as, as as Prince. You know, look, Prince cranked them out. Uh, I saw a quote on on this one that from uh, Quincy Jones, and I know he was exaggerating. We said we worked so hard on this record, we had we were carrying second engineers out on stretchers, and I was smoking 180 cigarettes a day. <laughs> so, so you know, and that was the thing. And that's really there's tales of that from from Thriller as well. My favorite one of those is they're like three in the morning, uh, like doing some mixing, and uh, Michael's pet python starts crawling on the <laughs> starts crawling on the Jeez. console, <laughs> and it's like you know, Quincy's like Jesus, I, what the fuck? I'm working with this guy, and I'm trying to do this album, and he's like got his goddamn python <laughs> in the studio, so. So, so, so again, there's, you know, there's just a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of, of really good stories. But again, you know, I'm a I'm a huge Michael Mark. Uh, this is an album that has not held up in the annals of time the way that Off the Wall and Thriller have, but maybe it should have because even at the time it had its fanboys. Uh, I found Rolling Stone's review uh, of this record. Which, by the way, damn, this is a good review. I'm just going to quote from it, but this is just reminds me, you know, we've talked a lot about how these modern pitchfork and NME assholes, they can't write. Well, yeah. back then, not only could these guys write, they actually had something incisive and something really uh, interesting to say. And so uh, just quoting from this Rolling Stone review of Bad, uh, he says, uh, once again, Jackson has written songs as dreams. And once again, he has the unselfconsciousness to present them without interpretation. Speed Demon, the car song, is a fun little power tale in which Jackson's superego gives his id a ticket. Smooth Criminal may be the result of retiring too soon after a Brian De Palma picture. <laughs> it's gory, but almost in the popcorn-chomping manner of Thriller. As in his best songs, Jackson's freeform language keeps us aware that we are on the edge of several realities. The film, the dream it inspires, and the waking world it illuminates. If these songs, even Smooth Criminal, which with its incessant Annie Are You Okay, seem less threatening than previous dream songs, like Heartbreak Hotel and Wanna Be Starting Something, it's because Jackson's perspective has changed. He is no longer the victim, the, ve- the vegetable that they want to eat up, but a concerned observer or a participant with power. <clears throat> For example, Dirty Diana, the wisp of a song about a sexual predator, does not aim for the darkness of Billie Jean. Instead, Jackson sounds equally intrigued by and, appreh- and apprehensive of a sexual challenge, but he feels free to accept or resist it. Hmm. That's pretty good. Yeah, it yeah, is. And, and, and it really just, and again, it, it, it does talk about that, that, <clears throat> that Michael is more aggressor and less victim uh, on this. Yeah, record. this is definitely a more his most aggressive album. Um, yeah, and, I, up to date <laughs> to this time, you know. Yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. And and it's a, it's his most aggressive record, but it's but he's also in a way it's his most confident as an artist. It's his most confident, right? Uh, which is not to say that it's his best because uh, they're arguably there's more discipline on the first two records than there is on this one. Yeah. Uh, right. This is, this was longer than both of those. And I think that, you know, like you said, there's a, like we've said, 
there's a little bit uh, less uh, of an organicness to it, more of a roboticness, yeah, which yeah. I think kind of uh, dampens it. But like I said, I think it holds up. I mean, and it's obviously a hugely influential record because you you think about Smooth Criminal or another part of uh, another part of me, you know, or you know, you know that song. There's just um, really strong. Uh, strong hooks, a really strong uh, electro uh, backbeat with that guitar prominent in the foreground. A lot of that stuff kind of became like the Teddy Riley's. It's no coincidence, and we'll get into this in the next episode. It's no coincidence that Teddy Riley uh, produced most of Michael's next record. Uh, yeah, because yeah. You know, Teddy Riley was kind of the heir apparent. He kind of took where what Michael and Quincy were doing, and he kind of brought it into a more hip hop era. Right, right. That'll be another interesting subject. <laughs> Dangerous. <laughs> yeah, which you yeah. know, again, you know, Michael on this record, he wasn't as disciplined, but he wasn't self-indulgent. Right. Now, now Dangerous, Dangerous is one of the most self-indulgent albums ever made. <laughs> so but that anyway, will be that that's a topic for chapter four. <laughs> yes, that, that definitely is a, a a topic for chapter four. Now, now before we, I think before we end this uh, Michael Jackson segment, I think we need to address the the elephant in the room. <laughs> um, yeah. Michael complaining about the media uh, pressure and and the media obsession with him. Um, well, when you're getting whiter and whiter and whiter, and your skin is your nose is getting smaller and smaller, <laughs> and yeah. it's obvious you're getting more and more plastic surgery. And you're built and you build an entire zoo in your palatial estate and you start having parties where you're having nothing but children come over and you're increasingly brazen about your openness in your quote unquote fondness for children. Yeah. People going to start paying attention to you more, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah. That's where this begins. Now that reached a fever pitch in 1991. I mean, and we're going to, we'll talk about that more in the next episode. Yeah. But yeah. here, here's where you start to get those pillars and posts, as you said, those signposts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we should mention, by the way, that uh, the the bad uh, tour that, you know, mm. it's this sort of colossal, you know, it's this colossal pop hit. And it's sure. sort of, you know, Michael not only asserting himself, but he's also cashing in on where he was with, with Thriller. As we said in the last episode, he didn't tour for Thriller. I mean, he, right. he, he did that. Well, the victory tour, if you count Yeah, that. I mean, if, I'm, I'm sure that... Uh, even the people that went to victory tour uh, concerts probably would want to forget those. Uh, but, <laughs> but he didn't tour on Thriller. He did a tour on Bad, and it lasted about a year and a half. Uh, went to 15 countries, uh, and it grossed about $125 million. Uh, yeah. I think it's fair to say that most of the money that Michael blew uh, from like 1990 on was launched from this tour. I mean, this, yeah. is, this is the thing that made him the most money. Even the Thriller... Uh, sales didn't make him uh, as much money uh, this yeah. quickly uh, as as the bad tour. And then the other thing about the bad tour as well is that it was like this hugely big budget. Uh, you know, Michael yep. at this point he's starting to wear an uh, a wardrobe that oddly is inspired by by metal guys from L.A. You know, like the, <laughs> the, the Motley Crues and the Billy Idols, and like we said, Steve Stevens played guitar on Dirty Diana, uh, and uh, he's starting take that patent leather and kind of weird uh, buckle thing that those guys were doing and spandex and all of that and incorporating it uh, into his thing. And so uh, huge success. Um, 
And it's really kind of set the standard for, you know, even like, you know, the, the failed YouTube pop tour, then like subsequent Rolling Stone tours, this idea of like all these stage props and, you know, dancers yeah. and all that, like you would basically without the bad tour, you probably don't even get the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I wish I was kidding. No, I mean, you know, that sort of over the top where it's the emphasis is as much on the dancers and on the pageantry and on the stage right. uh, props as right, it is right. on like the music. Uh, yeah. So that's what that's worth mentioning. But I'll talk a little bit about uh, what's happening with Michael at, at this point. Um, there's not a whole lot of things left that with Google searches or late night, I can't sleep like Google YouTube type things that will get me uh, stimulated anymore here. I mean, look, I mean, I'm 45 year old guy with a bad neck. And so I get more tired than I used to, but uh, I did find myself this week going down the rabbit hole of looking at stories on Michael Jackson's plastic surgery. Uh, And it it really is fascinating. You look (laughs) at a picture of him from like 1966 or 1977, good looking black kid with like the world's most natural Afro, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, this sort of darker cocoa, uh, skin. I mean, he had bad acne as a teenager, but by the time he's 1920, that that's gone. Uh, you know, he had, he always had the great smile, uh, you know, until he like, you know, basically he started like, uh, wearing lip liner and he thinned out his lips. And before that, then, you know, he always had the decent smile. And all that. And then you just see it go from over time. You know, there's the conflicting stories. Either he broke his nose uh, during a, uh, a dance routine uh, and had to get it fixed. Or he just didn't like the fact that his nose was so big because his father used to pick on him for it. Yeah, that, that's what I suspect. Yeah, and he wanted it smaller. And I did see a story from one of the British tabloids about the history of this. Apparently, he got Latoya Jackson to... Uh, be his guinea pig to see she volunteered she he asked her and she did it got a nose job and said hey it didn't hurt me and all that you can go ahead yeah and and so which is kind of crazy and so uh got the first nose job uh in like 1979 uh got another one the year or two later he just wanted to sort of you know clean up the other one but in the course it was either the first or the second one it caused a breathing issue and so he had to get it fixed. And it was that fix that started this path down. Oh, okay. Well, we overdid it on the cartilage. So now we have to kind of try to figure this out. And maybe he wanted it narrower at one point, but somebody made it too narrower, which started to kill the cartilage. And by the end of his life, he's basically got a, a hole, a leaking hole in his nose and needs to get the entire thing rebuilt and wear a prosthetic tip. This is gross. Oh. But. But specifically during this period, and this was kind of the um, one of the reasons Captain EO was so striking is because after he burned his head and when we are we are the world happened and all that, he disappeared for about a year. You know, he needed to take a break and he was working on uh, bad and bad took like two and a half years of work before they finally were able to release it. But he comes back from under uh, when he records the we are the world video in uh, February of 1985, you know, he still has the, the, the Jerry curl, which is relatively tight. He's still relatively dark skin. Uh, yeah. He's starting to do the, um, the eyeliner stuff for the, eyebrow, yeah. the, the pencil eyebrows thing. And he's, he's got all the glitter and all the weird stuff going on, but he, you know, essentially still looks like Michael Jackson. Hmm. Now he shows up in captain EO 
and he's a little bit lighter on the skin. Uh, his nose is narrower. Uh, he's clearly doing something with his eyelids at this point, uh, either mm-hmm. his, his eyelids or his eyebrows uh, or something like this. He's also at this point, uh, if you look at it, uh, it was by the first bad video, but it was somewhere in this period that he got a cleft implant in his chin. Jesus. Yeah. And he, all of a sudden he gets this, like this dimple, uh, in his chin and it, you know, it's, he wanted a more masculine chin, I guess. But, and so he, he goes from there and probably around this time he gets his first pair of, uh, of cheek implants too. And so he God. had cheek implants and chin implants. And so you're starting to see it. So Michael is looking different at this point. I mean, he still has the smile. I mean, you know, and I remember this didn't even occur to me as a kid, you know, like when I'm 12 years old and he comes out, it's like, I'm still looks like Michael. He had the same smile. He basically still had the same eyes. Uh, yeah. The rest of it, he had grown out his hair at this point and yeah, he probably was a little bit lighter and there was something weird there and maybe chalk it up the makeup at the time, but it really wasn't starting to, people weren't bothered by it at that point. He's still a star. He still can't do anything wrong. Like I said, he's still, uh, obviously bad didn't sell as well as thriller. It, it went diamond, but it took a while. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's probably sold like 15 million or something to date. <clears throat> but it wasn't until like 91 that all of this started to become a problem. You know, um, even like you said, at this point, he's starting to hang out with ch- child celebrities. He bought Neverland in 1988. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, he, he opens the zoo and the amusement park and starts to, this is where you start to see him have the kids coming over regularly and he gets involved in the kids' charities or starts his own and you start to get these uh, sleepovers. Yeah. And that's where you start to get this kind of stuff that, you know, that Neverland essentially is, uh, you know, he was obviously one of the the great influences on his artistic life was Peter Pan. Uh, And so this was his ability to, I never want to grow up. So this is going to be my, my big playground. You know, I'm going to buy this, you know, like you said, palatial estate and put all this kitty stuff in it and, and all of that. So this was the beginnings of all this. And, and obviously, like you said, the tabloid press is, is starting to give him flack for this. And he's starting to show his diva behavior and all this. But it again, and we'll talk about it in the next episode, it doesn't really tip over to where people are like, uh, it was, eh, hey, you know, Michael, eh, okay, you know, he's, he's an artist. It didn't get to what the fuck levels until the next record. At this point, he's still, he's still doing okay. On this episode, the curmudgeons provided the third installment of our epic, sweeping, award-winning series following the eerily parallel careers of Prince and Michael Jackson. For the next episode, we get our curmudgeonly bitch back on, and the target of our hatred is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Committee. That's right, Chris and I will do a tally of all the bands slash artists that should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame by now, many of whom should have been there years ago, and we will cast vitriol and shame on these nefarious committee members who, year after year, continue to insult these great bands and artists, and, even worse, continue to insult the sensibilities of the curmudgeons. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. Now, that was the Michael Jackson volley for this Prince versus Michael Jack- Jackson chapter 
Uh, now, uh, you may be asking yourself, okay, all well and good, but what was Prince uh, doing this period? And uh, why would Arturo think that what Prince was doing could be any bigger or better than all of the bad related activities that I just talked about? Arturo, uh, what can you tell us about Prince during this period? Maybe not bigger, but certainly better. <laughs> um, in this brief four-year period, Prince released 87, 88, 89, 90. He released four albums, two of them soundtracks. Um, while one of the soundtracks would go on to be one of his five best-selling albums ever, it's the album that he put out in 1987 that to this day stands as one of the foundational cornerstone albums of his legacy and it's easily one of the 100 greatest albums of all time if not top 50 top 10 <laughs> top 10 wow uh that album of course is the double album sign of the times now michael jackson's bad was the biggest selling album of 1987 with all those number one singles that carried over into 1988 however from a historical perspective the five greatest, most important, most culturally relevant albums of that underratedly great year of 1987 were U2's The Joshua Tree, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction, R.E.M.'s Document, Eric B. and Rakim's Paid in Full, and this masterpiece by Prince, Sign of the Times, which by now counts uh, by now counts as his fourth unassailable masterpiece in one decade. <laughs> um, Sign of the Times isn't necessarily a revolutionary change in style or necessarily a, a groundbreaking change in sound. What it does, however, is that it takes Prince's patented um, funk, soul, R&B, electronic, rock, pop hybrid, and it just elevates it to high pop art. Um, it isn't really a refining of a style as much as it is an expansion of style, uh, a, a, a severe expansion. Yeah, and, a, a breathtaking expansion, actually. Yeah, and a, and a perfecting of craft with some of the best songwriting, lyricism, and musicianship that Prince has ever displayed. Um, it really is not an overstatement to say that after this album, Prince spent the rest of his career trying to match it, <laughs> yeah, if not I, better it. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, he really did. I mean, especially because uh, because here, I mean, he had already like Purple Rain was probably the uh, the arrival of the guitar god, but yeah. Sign of the Times, uh, yeah, the guitar stuff on this. I mean, yeah. and, and, well, the the mix of like drum programming and, and lead guitar, he was chasing right. that the, the entire rest of his career yeah. for sure. But this album has is like Prince the songwriter comes out in this one as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the album has a pretty fascinating gestation. Um, around nineteen, around nineteen eighty five, eighty six. In addition to releasing the albums Around the World in a Day and Parade, he was also working on not one but two separate albums. <laughs> one with his band The Revolution, and one strictly solo. Yes, the man was a fucking machine. Yep. <laughs> um, the Revolution album was called was going to be called Dream Factory, and the solo one 
would, was going to be called Camille, in which Prince was going to adopt a female persona and sing songs from a female perspective. Yeah. Well, Prince disbanded the revolution, put all the material from the two albums together, and wanted to release a triple album called Crystal Ball. Naturally, Warner Brothers balked <laughs> at the <laughs> idea of a triple album, much like with Michael Jackson and his original ver vision of Bad. Yet another eerie parallel. They both wanted to have double and triple albums. Oh, and right? I, I, for I forgot to mention, by the way, that, that Bad, the song, was originally intended as a duet with Prince. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that, that, I, I needed to catch up on that. So, what, yeah. Was, what, did, was, did Prince agree to it? Uh, evidently not. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I think, I think it started out as that, but then it fell through. But yeah, uh, Prince, Prince Prince didn't have much respect for Michael Jackson. He really didn't like him that much. If you read about the interviews and people who knew Prince, mm -hmm. like Michael Jackson revered Prince as an artist. Mm -hmm. Prince didn't have that same respect for Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah. Pr Pr Prince's thing was like, Motherfucker, I can do anything you can do. You cannot do anything I can do. <laughs> that was, you know, but that's Prince, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah, Prince was a competitive guy. My, Michael was competitive too. I mean, it just, uh, yeah, yeah I, I could see those two like respecting each other but not liking each other. And that, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's one of these things that, oh, Michael sold 10 million, hold my beer. Oh, yeah, like, <laughs> you know, Prince did that, hold my beer, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so Prince was talked into making a double album instead. And this dispute actually foreshadows much of the animosity that will develop between Prince and his label in the 1990s, which will be discussed in detail in chapter four of yep. this illustrious uh, series. <laughs> anyway, Prince abandoned the old concepts he had in mind and wisely chose the best tracks of the bunch, augmented them with seven brand new songs, one of which, one of which was the, or became the title track to the album. Now, earlier I called the album uh, Sign of the Times expansive, and it's exactly that. It is expansive. Uh, you name the style or genre, and it is on it. You've got funk, soul, R&B, electronica, rock, gospel, blues, folk, and even hints of jazz, all in this like super sexy, polished, powerful, just overwhelmingly beautiful cauldron, which is this epic cinematic uh, sweep to it. Yeah. Uh, you, you can almost call this album like Prince's love letter to American music because it kind of is that. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, I, I kind of agree with that because it, it really does kind of uh, cover the uh, the gamut from A to ZZZ. Uh, it, yeah. it, 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 it goes all over the place. And you know, it's interesting, like, and the other thing, too, is he does a lot of, like, narrative uh, yes. uh, play, too. Like, If I Was Your Girlfriend, uh, you know, yeah. comes from that. A lot of that. storytelling, yeah. Coming yeah, a lot, in a lot this, of yeah. storytelling, but also, you know, like you said, the perspective of women talking to women. Which uh, comes from Camille. The, the, those are those are the songs he intended for the Camille album. Yeah, no, yeah, no, absolutely. My, my, my personal favorite song is the Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't think that outside of hip hop, there's ever been a better drum programming than there is on on that song. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. So, I mean, talk about Michael Jackson's electronics on Bad. Let's talk about Prince's electronics on Sign of the Times. Yeah, which are like a million times better. <laughs> you know, ultimately, <laughs> yeah. I mean, just I mean, even come from a Michael guy, I mean. 
I, I think uh, bad is a great pop record and listening to it again, it's aged really well. Uh, I get to me, I think you can make an argument. Maybe it's aged better than sign of the times. Although I uh, can't really say that only because sign of the times got a reissue last year that actually uh, debuted in the top 20 of the billboard 200. Yep. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that means it, it still has legs. Yeah, yeah, yes, it does. Yeah. So you know, and the thing about Sign of the Times, it isn't really a concept album. It's more of a thematic album. Yes, and that theme, as it unfolds throughout the double disc set, is quote the end of the. I'm this is my this is my view of it. The end of the world as we know it is coming soon. So we'd better share as much of our love as possible. Make love as much as possible cherish our friendships and find our inner peace with any kind of spirituality we can find. Now, at least that's what I get out of it. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what I get out of it too. It's, yeah. it's more, yeah. uh, you know, it, you know, 1999 has some of that apocalyptical stuff going on, but this is uh prince's, it's almost like his mature. Uh, we're, we're about to leave. So let's, uh, you know, let's appreciate what we got and let's maximize yeah. the time that we have. And, like yeah. even stuff like you got the look. I mean, it has that kind of nervy, yeah. um, uh, like unnervy. <laughs> I guess might be the better, better, <laughs> nervy better worthy. Term. Yeah, nervy worthy. Yeah, no, it's got this. Um, it, it definitely has this this energy in it. Well, there's an. I guess it's an urgent record uh, as it well. Is. It really yeah. is. Yeah, there's a momentum from the from the beginning that just lasts throughout the whole record. Oh yeah, and that that momentum established just with the very first song, the title track sign of the times, which is basically like his state of the union address. And up until that point, his most overt socio-political statement so far. And it has my favorite, it has my favorite Prince baseline on it too. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, he talks about poverty, drug addiction in inner cities and political corruption as being ever present Mm -hmm. in a very like almost matter of fact style. He's not condemning. He's not praising. He's just saying, "Hey, this is the shit we're living with." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? it's, it's basically like it's his "What's Going On" moment. Uh, exactly. Which and and and, it, and, and and this is his "What's Going On" album, really. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and, but it's just, and it's interesting the parallels because the uh, when "What's Going On" came on, I could just imagine with the the uh, the loose, you know, the sort of the conga saxophone, almost free jazz kind of arrangement that that song right. had coming in a, it's a Motown song with a free jazz arrangement. Yeah. And here, here we have Prince doing this. Um, I don't, I think about sign of the times. I can't think of a sign, a song that's ever quite been like that. Um, yeah. if you think it's got about that, it, it's got that luscious baseline, that minimalist rhythm, it's like, it really is like, it was one of the standout tracks on the album and it's one of the standout tracks in his entire discography. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, again, it's, cause it was a top 10 hit and it was this big, uh, it was kind of, he had a lull there, I guess, you know, you know, yeah. like kiss. Yeah. But, but he had, he had a little bit of a lull there and he kind of came roaring back into radio relevance. Yeah. And, and it was that song. And it, it just, I still, it's one of the most singular, uh, it oh. was number one, number one in the R and B charts. Yep, it re- it reclaimed Prince with the Black Folks. <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, it did. And, and they, boy, got, they got they got back into Prince with that with that song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and also this this album also has romantic relationship songs, like in his previous records. But the romantic relationship songs on Sign of the Times are more nuanced. Yeah, and they're more lyrically mature than ever. Uh, with with you know, if I was your girlfriend, which is again this awesome R and B groover. 
uh, strange relationship. You have the sublime pop rock of I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, covered a few years later by the Goo Goo Dolls, yeah. by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Brilliant song. Uh, yeah. The album peaked at number six in the Billboard album chart and went, and went on to go platinum, i.e. selling one million copies. Now, that would be great for almost any other band or artist, but for Prince, this was extremely disappointing. He reportedly had high hopes for this album, and he thought it would be as big as Purple Rain, and understandably so. It should have been. Yeah, now, Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Sign of the Times is released as a double album, right? Yes. And and so here... The RIAA, for folks that might not know this, and the only reason I knew this is because I covered music business for a while. Uh, the Platinum Albums, it it refers to, it's not albums sold, it's albums shipped. Hmm. Uh, and so a double album counts as two units. So basically, when you're talking about a million albums shipped in the RIAA world, that's 500,000 total records. Hmm. And so, so this album actually didn't even sell as much as that. Jeez, that's yeah. Th- th- I understand why Prince was so upset at the American reaction uh, to Sign of the Times. Um, the album did produce three singles that hit the top ten of the Billboard Pop Chart. Sign of the Times went to number three. Um, you got the look, the the Sheena Easton duet. This Great is song. irresistible electro funk slammer. She'll be, went be to, cooking. Yeah, yeah. Went to number two. Went to number two. Mm-hmm. And I could never take the place of your man at number 10. Now, those are excellent chart placements that any artist would kill for, <laughs> you know. But even then, it feels like they underperformed, considering yeah. how incredible those songs are and how incredible the record is that they came from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but by, by this point, you know, Prince is still an icon, but uh uh 1987, 88, 89, or just that's Michael Jackson and Madonna's playground. Uh, yeah. It's basically, the, they're, they're, they're ruling the, the universe uh, side by side. Although, although, and I'll get to this later with the Batman soundtrack in 89, Prince got himself back, you know, into that and Michael True. Jackson, Madonna sphere. But I'll get to that later. Well, okay. we're almost there. Now this relative quote unquote lack of success, that was all stateside. The album sold like hotcakes in Europe. It's a huge hit over there. And Prince embarked on a sold-out arena tour of the continent. And the plan was to film the shows in Rotterdam and Antwerp, edit them together, and release a concert film in the U.S. However, Prince hated the sound quality of what was recorded at those shows. So instead, after the tour, he and the band went to his Paisley Park studios in Minneapolis to reshoot the concert film. (laughs) (laughs) Reportedly about 80% of what ended up in the film came from the Paisley studios reshoot. (laughs) So it's not really a live concert It's live, live concert in the studio. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, the, The film itself is also called sign of the times, not much creativity there. And it didn't do too well in its initial theater run. However, when it came out later on VHS, it was a big hit and it got rave reviews again, especially in Europe. Now, Prince may have been upset with the sales of the album in the US, but he really could not have been upset with the critical reviews. 
at the time, it got rave reviews from all over music, me- all over the music media spectrum, hailing it as arguably his greatest album and artistic achievement. Uh, it finished at number one in the Village Voices Paz and Jop poll for 1987. Yep. By, according to Robert Criscow, the biggest margin ever in the history of the poll. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious if you look at '87 that that was the, the record. It also has been a hugely influential uh, album for rock nerds and critics and writers. Yeah, and totally. it's our age. Uh, yeah, to, it, to, it to also, a, yeah, to a man, we all love it. Yeah, it also finished number two in the NME's year-end poll of best albums. Was nominated for album of the year at the Grammys in 1988, and more importantly, at the end of the decade. The Cure's Robert Smith, in an interview, named it one of his favorite favorite albums of the 1980s. So, hey, 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 he got Robert (laughs) Smith's endorsement. Exactly. uh, Also, you know, we mentioned the uh, Rolling Stone uh, Top 500 album uh, uh, list earlier. Uh, This edition, uh, Sign of the Times, comes in at number 45. Yep. And and keep in mind that, uh, yeah, I was just looking at it before this episode and, and Get indicative of, of modern times. There's two Jay Z records and two Outcast records now listed in the top 100 uh, in, in, in that votership. Which I'm they, okay with Outcast. I'm not so okay with Jay Z. Well, reasonable doubt. Well, Blueprint. Tell you the truth, I'm actually okay with Blueprint being top 100. But anyway, yeah. for, be that as it may, uh, you know, again, you know, Rolling Stone these days probably shouldn't be the end all and be all for anything uh, rock yeah. and roll. Or, or right. you know, that's the reason we have parallel universe folks. That's the reason exactly. we have a curmudgeon rock report, but 45, not bad. Right. You know, like I said, Michael Jackson's bad had all the record sales, but Prince had the critics and the music geeks on his side with sign of the times. And if anything, like you said, the test of time has proven that sign of the times to be a far better and arguably more influential album. Oh, certainly um, more influential than bad. Uh, I think it's more, I think it's better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's better too. I mean, I, I'll say this. I think that bad, uh, again, it was surprising to me, uh, you know, listening to this record for the first time in years to get ready for this record that one, I think it holds up, uh, two, it may actually be as good, if not better than thriller. I mean, I don't revere it as much as thriller, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's a solid ass record. Uh, it ain't, it ain't sign of the times though. Uh, and, it's interesting because Off the Wall and Thriller are the hugely influential records from Michael. And I would say Purple Rain and uh, this one Sign of the Times, Times yeah. are, are the influential Prince records. And so maybe it's the reverse. I think 99, 1999 probably gets some short shrift uh, these days. Mm. Yeah. So. yeah I, I, I think 1999 is just up there as far as influence and importance because that, that, that really... Mm-hmm. Kind of established the Prince persona <laughs> that we know, you know, yeah. that we know now. So now here's a question: After Sign of the Times, what does Prince do? Well, as restless as ever, he goes right back to the studio, as you would expect, and he came out with Love Sexy in 1988. Now, as much as I love Prince, his career really is a testament to the curmudgeonly tenant that there's such a thing as being too prolific. And there's something to be said for quality control. <laughs> and, love, and Love Sexy is proof of that. Yes. Prince could have taken a year off between Sign of the Times and the Batman soundtrack, but he didn't. 
Um, I firmly believe one of the reasons Prince's album sales in the U.S. tailed off by the end of the of, of the decade is that he just saturated the market with Prince product, whether yeah. it be albums, soundtracks, movies, whatever. You know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he he could have used some off time for people to want him again, like Michael Jackson did. You know, between Thriller and Bad. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, I will say this. You know, Prince, uh, I mean, well, one, I mean, at least from Love Sexy, at least we get Alphabet Street. So thank you for that, Prince. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get into that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not not done Love Sexy. No, I understand that. But he even said it himself, like an an interview right before he died, a couple years before he died, that he did Rolling Stone. Uh, He said, okay, so I could make all of this great music and I can think this is the best stuff I've done in years. But if I take it to radio... They're going to be like, oh, that's nice. You're Prince. Okay, let's get back to playing When Devs Cry. And <laughs> you got the look in, in 1999. Yeah. He, he just kind of knew that at a certain point in his career, it didn't matter what he did. Uh, it was only going to be those four or five songs and it, it, that could ever get played by the radio. And he would never get on the radio. Well, and I suspect that maybe some of that was starting now at this point. Yeah, I think because he put too much stuff out. Mm-hmm. Had he taken a break between Purple Rain and Sign of the Times, I think Sign of the Times would have been a much, much bigger seller, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, Love Sexy just suffers from a lack of cohesion and quality songs. It's well-produced. It's a, it's well-arranged, as you come to expect from Prince. But it got mediocre reviews. It peaked at number 11 on the album chart, his lowest placing since Controversy in 81. But like you said, Chris, one of the few saving graces of this album is that sparkling staccato pop funk of Alphabet Street, one of his catchiest singles ever. The song did score high, went number eight in the Billboard pop chart. And uh, the Love Sexy album itself was a smash hit throughout Europe, hitting number one in several countries, especially the UK. You know, so at this point, Prince must have been thinking of relocating to Europe. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, people love me. People love me over here, you know. It's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. Hey, I'll, I'll take the white Norwegians over the black folks from Minnesota, you know. Yeah, you know. However, lo and behold, Prince would Prince would make a roaring commercial comeback to end the decade on pretty much a stratospheric high. He got commissioned to do the soundtrack for the movie Batman. The one for all the young kids out there, the, the Batman with Michael Keaton as Batman. And Jack, Jack Nicholson is the Joker. Yeah, I.e. The, I, the one guy who's played the Joker recently who didn't win an Oscar. Yeah, exactly. And the movie, to be fair, would go on to be one of the biggest box office hits of all time. Yep. So accordingly, the soundtrack album was a worldwide smash. It hit number one in both the U.S., going more than two times platinum, and the U.K., and it would hit the top five in almost every other country. Uh, the main single from the album, Bat Dance, would go on to be one of the biggest hit songs of Prince's career, going to number one on the Billboard pop chart and either number one or number two in almost every other country's pop chart. The go. song was huge. Yep, Bat so Dance. Like you, were yep. Saying, like you were saying, you know, the playground of Michael and Madonna, the late 80s, Prince got off it and came right back on it yep. by the time the decade ended. Mm-hmm. Now, that's all commercially speaking. 
is the Batman soundtrack actually any good? Yes. Hell fuck yeah, it is. Yeah, it's this good. Is, yeah, it's some of his best guitar work. Yeah. Yeah. This is Prince deciding to make a no holds barred, no bullshit, no filler, pure orgy of dance and funk. Yep. With one slow burning love jam toward the end, Scandalous, which is actually one of the best songs in the album. Yeah. No, it doesn't have the artistic scope of Sign of the Times or even Purple Rain, but who fucking cares? <laughs> this, this whole soundtrack is a jam. Yep. And I mean, I maintain it's, it's, it's the funkiest soundtrack ever made, even more so than those awesome black exploitation soundtracks of the 1970s. Uh, I don't know about that. Superfly is uh, is pretty untouchable. Well, okay, it's funk. It's funkier than Shaft. Yeah, I will it, say it, that. Yeah, it, 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 it is funkier than Shaft. But uh, nothing's ever going to beat Mayfield Superfly. On, and on it's fuckier than James Brown's Black Caesar. <laughs> Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, uh, the, uh, Black, jo- uh, Black Brown's, uh, Black Brown, James Brown's Black Caesar. <laughs> Excuse me. That, 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 that was a great mile prop. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's basically James Brown at his, yo, uh, I'm here. Just, just, just give me the money and I'll just, <laughs> I'll, I'll just give you what you need and I'll go home. Exactly. Yeah. Prince did not do that with Batman. No, he did not. not. Him because was, he knew he yeah. knew this movie was going to be a huge hit. Mm-hmm. Like, shit, I, gotta, I better make a huge hit, some huge hit music here. Yeah, and, and, he, and he did. It was like great jams, uh, great jams yeah, all the way through huge it. Huge yeah. seller. And, and it put Prince right back in the Michael Jackson sphere. Mm-hmm. Just like 90, 1999 in Purple Rain was a one-two punch earlier in the decade, Sign of the Times and Batman were the one-two punch that at the end of the of the decade consolidated Prince's position as, in my opinion, the premier pop artist in the world, especially when you add those albums to all those earlier landmark albums of the 1980s, yeah. Dirty Mind, 1999, Purple Rain. Even with those intermittent mediocre records in between the masterpieces, 1980s Prince really is a staggering body of work. Yeah, it really is. You know, it I mean, really is. You know I mean, I mean? And, and that's the thing. Look, you know, you can say that, you know, that Michael was probably the artist of the decade because of his, his influence, all that. But, you know, you take off the wall, thriller and bad, and then you put it uh, next to Dirty Mind, Purple Rain, Sign of the Times. Uh, I probably, even myself, would take the latter. My, the critic of Pardon Me. Uh, would take the latter. Uh, the the kid in me and and the pop purist in me would probably take the Michael three. But yeah, but Prince, un, but, un, that, un, yeah. but that Prince, th- those three albums, yeah, uh, that's 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 a pretty awesome streak. Yeah, and another critic who would agree with you is Robert Criscow. Yep. <laughs> uh, Sign of the Times is probably the cherry on top of that Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, Criscow again talking about Sign of the Times. When he reviewed it, quote, it established Prince as the greatest rock and roll musician of the era as singer, guitarist, cooksmith, beatmaster. He has no peer, end quote. Damn straight. Yeah. And by the end of 1989, in, in my opinion, no one could you know, no one could touch Michael Jackson commercially. But artistically speaking, this 87 to 89 period is when Prince I think officially surpasses Michael, uh, pulls ahead and doesn't lose ground until the day he died in 2016. Yeah. And, and, and then there's graffiti bridge. <laughs> yeah. Hey, at least it gave us Tevin Campbell, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
you know. But like I said, yeah, I mean, this period, I think this is the period where not commercially, but artistically, really, Prince pulls ahead of Michael here. Well, I, I would um, argue that uh, it was starting with Diamonds and Pearls where he really pulled ahead of Michael. And not with Sign of the Times? You don't think that's when he pulled ahead artistically? Well, I mean, well, I mean, define artistically. I think just overall, overall body of, of everything that he was doing. It was Diamond and Pearls where, you know, where he went assless and, uh, you know, and then he came up with the symbol and all that stuff. And he just kind of, that's, that's the next chapter. No, I understand. Yeah. We we keep, we keep hinting at the next chapter, but you can't, you can't really understand chapter four without under, because this chapter sets all of that up. So. Yeah, but 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 I I really think Sign of the Times plus Batman equals better than bad. Sorry, it just does, you know. Well, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm I look as influential as bad. Yeah, uh, better. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Spe- speaking of not better. Okay. Yes. <laughs> here's but, Graffiti Bridge. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's, at that sound you hear is the bridge falling into the river. Kaboom. Yes. yes. Yeah. 1990. Prince started the new decade with another movie that he starred in, directed, and recorded the soundtrack for. In the last chapter of this series, I did my best to defend the movies Purple Rain and Under the Cherry Moon. I cannot defend this piece of shit. <laughs> Graffiti Bridge <laughs> is just plain terrible. It really is. The movie went straight to video, which says it all. But I'll tell you more. (laughs) Why? Why? (laughs) It is a low-budget, cheap-ass film made in a low-budget, cheap-ass soundstage uh, in the Paisley Park Studios. And and it's a cheap-ass soundstage made to look like Minneapolis. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a direct sequel to, to the Purple Rain movie where Prince's character, the kid, is now a club owner who's still trying to make it into the music business. Morris Day, playing the same character he played in Purple Rain, is another club owner who's buying up all the other clubs in the Minneapolis area and wants Prince's club. Now, these two guys end up having music battles where one guy's band tries to outplay the other guy's band for ownership of the club. (laughs) In In the middle of all this, there's a girl called Aura, who both Prince and Morris Day characters fall in love with, who turns out to be an angel sent from heaven to make peace between Morris Day and the kid. Oh, poor angry Chavez. <laughs> apparently, apparently God has a vested interest in what goes on in the Minneapolis club scene. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, in the, in, the, in the body and the very hot body of Angry Chavez, yes. Yeah. Anyway... Aura gets hit by a car. Both the kid and Morris Day feel bad about it. They make up and join forces. And the kid eventually invites God into his heart, thereby getting into Aura's pants. The end. Now, (laughs) what (laughs) what starts out as a cheesy but sort of endearing musical for Prince to put a spotlight on up-and-coming Minneapolis R&B acts kind of degenerates into this preachy, self-righteous exercise in ramming Christianity down your throat. Yeah, pretty much. Yes, I understand that this is around the time Prince became a Jehovah's Witness. 
But did he have to make a fucking movie proclaiming it to the world? Yeah. And a shitty and a shitty one at that? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, oh, and there's a, there's another Prince versus Michael Jackson thing for you there in this era too. It was at the beginning of this era that Michael had a famously public and ugly divorce from the Jehovahs, while oh. at the same time Prince is embracing the Jehovahs. You know, well, so you know, the Jehovahs we're, we're losing one pop star, gaining another. Yeah, and and, and then uh, yeah, we're we're losing one guy who doesn't celebrate Christmas and replacing him with another. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now so. the Golden Raspberry Awards. As mm-hmm. we all know, they're the reverse Oscars. Yes. They fucking they they fucking love Prince. Yeah. They had a feast with this movie. Mm-hmm. It swept every major nomination for worst film, worst actor, Prince, worst director, Prince, worst screenplay, Prince, who wrote it, and worst new star, Ingrid Chavez, who played Aura. Now, I don't know if it won any of the awards, but it sure should have. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, and uh, uh, let me uh, let me read into the record. I, I know I shared this with you offline and before we recorded, but I, I really want to read it because it's great. Uh, the uh, the film critic Richard Harrington, who was writing for the Washington Post back then in 1990, uh, this is the beginning of his uh, wonderful uh, uh, bad review, uh, negative review of, of Graffiti Bridge. He says uh, Prince's new film Graffiti Bridge uh, Bridge should be bronzed immediately and delivered to Hollywood's <laughs> Hall of Shamelessness, where it might draw bigger crowds than it's likely to at movie theaters once word gets out about how thoroughly excretable it is. By comparison, <laughs> Prince's Under the Cherry Moon, a golden turkey honoree just a few years back, looks like <laughs> Citizen Kane. <laughs> we are talking major disaster here. The dynamite that's likely to destroy Prince's increasingly shaky reputation as a pop genius Somebody stop him before he films again. God. <laughs> and Prince's yeah. response to this, in a 1991 interview, Prince actually defended the movie. Yeah, this, is his, this, this is his defense. Quote, it was one of the purest, most spiritually uplifting things I've ever done. It was nonviolent. It was positive. It had no blatant sex scenes. And maybe it will take 30 years for people to get it. Remember, they trashed the Wizard of Oz, the Wizard of Oz at first, too. Yes, he compared Graffiti Bridge to the Wizard of Oz. And, and, and I, have, oh, I have news for the, uh, the ghost of Prince. Here we are 30 years later, and your movie still sucks. Yeah. However, two good things came out of Graffiti Bridge, though. One is the soundtrack. It isn't as consistently great as Batman. But there are some good funk jams with Prince's new band, the New Power Generation, which foreshadows some of the, I think, genuinely great music they would put out in the next few years. The second good thing about this movie is that Morris Day is at his absolutely most Morris Day-ish in this film. That guy's great. Uh, There is one hilarious exchange between Morris Day and a, and a young girl in the film goes as follows. Morris Day says, damn girl, where'd you get that ass? <laughs> the girl says, and you know, he was, he was being rude and obnoxious. The girl being offended says, oh, the same place where you got your manners. <laughs> and then Morris Day says, well, that means you must've gotten your ass from your mama. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's just great. Now, here we enter uh, the vault, and as we always do in the home stretch of these episodes, and uh, for this uh, vault exploration, where Arturo and I go deep into the retresses of our uh, catalog, we deep uh, we dig deep in those crates. Uh, we're focusing on this period that we've been talking about, where Michael Jackson and Prince were ruling the roost between the years of 1987 and 1990. So we wanted to look into that period, and uh, it's a pretty rich, uh, rich period. I mean, if you think about Very. it, uh, yeah. you know, some of the great radio, there's about as a quality to the pot that came out in the early, uh, in the late 80s, excuse me, uh, that's really on a par with like the late 50s. I mean, this yeah. kind of like radio pop. And even the folks that weren't getting on the radio were making some pretty amazing radio pop. Yeah. Yeah, college radio and all the alternative and indie, the early alternative indie rock of college radio, great stuff. Uh, absolutely, and so this was marvelous pop music, uh, even if it didn't sell back then, and so that's what we're focusing on this week. Uh, Arturo, what are you going out of that, uh, uh, that epoch? I'm going with one of the true unsung heroes of the U.S. indie alternative rock scene of the 1980s. And this is the band Thin White Rope. And uh, their classic, well, classic to me, <laughs> 1988 album, In the Spanish Cave. Now, um, contemporaries of theirs, like R.E.M., The Replacements, and The Pixies, got all the press at the time. Maybe not the record sale. Well, R.E.M. got the record sales, but the other two only got the press. Um, but these guys, Thin White Rope, had an inventive original sound all of their own uh it's really a shame that they've been largely forgotten in rock history except of course for music geeks like us who are into all kinds of obscure shit well this is what the vault segment of the curmudgeon rock report is all about shining a light on bands and albums that should be remembered or just at least revisited mm -hmm. Uh, Thin White Rope were formed in, an, in the early 1980s in the small town of Davis, California, not far from Sacramento. And they were led by lead singer-guitarist Guy Kaiser. Uh, they got their name from a line in William S. Burroughs' novel, Naked Lunch, where Burroughs describes human semen. Yeah, this, yes. this, this makes sense. Thin them... White Rope is, is basically cum. Yes, and uh, <laughs> coincidentally, this makes Thin White Rope the second most famous band to name themselves after a, uh, a, a shtick from Naked Lunch. The other being Steely Dan. Yes, which is the vibrator. <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway. All right. In 1984, Thin White Rope, they sent out a four-track recording of a bunch of their songs, basically a demo, uh, to a whole bunch of record labels. Somehow, the head of Frontier Records, Lisa Fancher, she was impressed by the demo after reading a positive review in an independent fanzine, and then she signed the band. 
Now, for those of you who don't know, Frontier Records, they still exist, by the way. They're an L.A.-based indie label that throughout the years has put out albums by The Circle Jerks, American Music Club, Suicidal Tendencies, Red Cross, and Heat Miser, otherwise known as Elliot Smith's original band. Yep. So yeah, Frontier was and or is a heavy-duty indie label up there with SST and Sub Pop. Anyway, the first two Thin White Rope albums, uh, Exploring the Axis from 1985 and Moonhead from 1987, were critically well-received and they established their sound. But it's their third album, 1988's In the Spanish Cave, that perfected that unique sound and really demonstrated the best songwriting they had done yet. Now, how would I describe Thin White Rope sound? I would call it really dark, haunting desert grunge rock with a strong dose of rockabilly, but not quite Gene Vincent style rockabilly or campy rockabilly a la the cramps. It's more like a menacing evil rockabilly. Yeah. Or, or if you choose not to believe me, you can uh, listen to an even better description by British music journalist Graham Thompson when he did a retrospective article on the band in a 2015 issue of The Guardian. Quote, Thin White Rope often made a slightly terrifying sound, but it was beautiful too. Guy Kaiser wrote fantastic melodies, and while his charred voice could out Beefheart Captain Beefheart, it also possessed a quavering tenderness. Their use of twin guitars was as thrilling and distinctive as anything Thin Lizzy or Television achieved with 12 strings. Coiling, co-centric lines overloaded and unflailingly malevolent with brutally deployed and expertly controlled feedback. They were kind of funny as well, though it's impossible to explain why. End quote. <laughs> they put out two more albums in the early 90s that were pretty sketchy. They really could never match that initial album triptych, really. But they toured a lot in Europe, where they had a bigger following than stateside. Nevertheless, they amicably broke up in 1992. Nevertheless, everyone listening to this podcast should definitely check out the criminally forgotten Thin White Rope. Now, from one great lost alternative rock band of the 80s to one not quite so lost because they had some hits. Chris? Yeah, uh, well, I think that it's a different story. We're talking about the Smithereens. Yeah. Uh, and uh, their story is, is they're not quite forgotten, uh, yeah. but they should be way more revered <laughs> than yeah. they actually were. And it's interesting. Right. Now, for me, the Smithereens, obviously, a lot of folks our age in our mid-40s will remember that they had a moment in the sun in 1990. Yes, it's from a 1989 record, but yeah. it, with 1990, they got uh, heavy airplay on MTV with A Girl Like You. Yeah. And so people will remember uh, them uh, from that. However, there was a lot more to the Smithereens and Pat Benicio, uh than uh, just that one hit wonder or these kinds of, uh, you know, this, this earworm glory, 15 minutes of fame. Uh, right. I first came on to them when I was in law school and there was a, a rock station in White Plains that I've still tuned into once in a while on the internet, WXPK. Uh, the peak. And so I encourage folks to download uh, their app and listen to them. Uh, they're still under the impression that the smithereens squeeze 
uh, and like uh, Graham Parsons, or not Graham Parsons, what was his name? Graham Parker, uh, Graham Parker. Should, should, are, are still at the top of the charts. Uh, yeah. it, it's that kind of stuff, that sort of turn of the uh, 70s, uh, beginning of the 80s. Uh, kind of kind of thing, but the Smithereens also got a lot of, of love uh, on that station, and that's what turned me on to the album I'm going to uh, recommend uh, from our vault, uh, Green Thoughts, uh, which yeah. is a marvelous pop record. Uh, right, right before they broke through, yeah, yeah, right before they broke through. Uh, however, it had the song that kind of set them up. It was a minor hit. Uh, I don't know if you would call it a minor hit, but but it, the college rock stations had caught on to it and it had gotten popular in Jersey and New York. Um, uh, this uh, the main song that people might know from this record is Only a Memory, right? Uh, which is again, awesome song. Awesome song. But this, this whole album, it's 11 songs, 36 minutes, uh, incredible pop record with uh, a few uh, awesome uh, rock songs on it. Uh, there's uh, Only a Memory. Uh, the house that we used to live in. Oh, can I interject real quick, Chris? I'm looking it up. Uh, only a memory, number one on the U.S. mainstream rock charts. Really? Yeah, it was a big hit. Okay. Uh, and, and, and 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 yeah, it, it was it was a big hit. A girl like you, number two. <laughs> okay. Well, but the difference is, is which one got on MTV? Uh, so, exactly. so that's yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah. So. Uh, I did not know that. Thank you. Because I know that uh, Only a Memory is is the other song that some of you might out there, if you think Smithereens would, would come up first. Uh, but However, the, diff- the difference is Only a Memory got to 92 on the Hot 100 pop chart. Uh, a, gr- a Girl Like You went number 38. It was top 40. Yes, it was a top 40 hit. And it also was a staple of uh, whatever the yeah. forerunner to Total Request Live was. Right. Uh, that it would show up in the top ten requests uh, uh, yeah. for that uh, for that yeah. for that period. So, uh, Green Thoughts, uh, Smithereens—they're a New Jersey bar band, basically—and uh, uh, but just really, Denisio was a songwriter. Songwriter, uh, he these lovely three-minute songs. Some of them sped up and cranked up to eleven. Some of them not, um, and he just had. Uh, talent on loan from God. Uh, he just uh, a brilliant lyricist, uh, really actually great guitarist. Uh, just had the songwriting chops and had a lot to say too. Uh, really great writer of love songs. Uh, better writer of breakup songs. Uh, yeah, like I said, most of his songs are breakup songs. Yeah, like I said, <laughs> all, you know, there's uh, you know, there's only a, only a memory. Uh, and then, uh, you know, there's uh, Drown in My Own Tears is the other yeah. uh, great one from this. And so that kind of became a staple of House House We Used to Live In is a great song. too. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then but there's other stuff on there, like uh, uh, one of my favorite songs on it is Especially for You, which yeah. uh, I, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, in some senses, you can look at that as being sweet and romantic. And the other sense, you can look at it as a sardonic fuck off song. But, it's the only song that Denisio co-wrote. Every other song in the album is written by him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no. Yeah, it said Denisio. It said prolific writer, brilliant writer. That was his band. Uh, and again, even like the album closer, like Green Thoughts. Uh, you know, you've got there was a gentleness to that Denisio. There was a gentleness and a sweetness that he could accomplish. Uh, his best stuff is the stuff that's revved up and the breakup songs, but the love songs. 
you know, there's, yeah. um, you know, I have a friend down here named Elaine. And so when I hear the, the song Elaine, uh, I immediately uh, uh, think, think of her. So it's just, you know, again, it's a very, uh, we talk about pop music. You know, Michael yeah. was making great pop music. Prince was making great pop music. Uh, I remember I had an editor when I worked at MTV SonicNet, you know, 100 years ago, a guy named Matt Malucci. And uh, we were talking one time and one, one of the guys in a meeting said, you know, okay, so we want to do some, we want to have a channel. Uh, this is SonicNet at the time. They were trying this and it's what ruined them. They wanted to have like 12 channels per genre. Hmm. And uh, we had a meeting and said, okay, so when we think of the pop channel, what kind of bands should we be basing these on? And I immediately chimed in and said, the Beatles, Matt immediately came in and said, the smithereens. And mm. so we all kind of looked at each other like, huh? And then we thought for a second, like, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, or at least the folks that knew this. I, I love smithereens. I love Pat Benizio and I love the sound green thoughts. Go check it out. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that, you know, the, the Beatles influence comes in. You know, Robert Criscow was not a big fan of the Smithereens. Don't, don't surprise uh, me. Cause, yeah, Criscow is quirky, but he's not usually – he wasn't a fan of bands like that, really. Yeah, I know. He, he, gave, he gave this album a C-plus, commenting, I know Pat Denizio is Beatlesque, but is that why he writes cheerful-sounding love songs that turn out to be kind of mean when you pay attention? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, well, that's that. Well, that's kind of it. Uh, you know, the uh, like I said, you know, we we've talked about uh, his his lyrics. I mean, the uh, the opening stanza is only a memory. You know, my mind is filled with thoughts of you. I think about the days of two. I search the room, but you're not there. Your perfume lingers everywhere, but it's only a memory of what our love was going to be. Only yeah. a memory of broken bits of you and me. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that. That approach is Dylan. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, you know, he was good. Things people think Beatlesque. When I hear a lot of the Smithereens music, especially their guitars and the guitar playing and and their chord structure, I hear a lot of REM. Yeah, I hear, I, I hear a lot of REM. I, I also hear a lot of Bruce too. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's to me like Smithereens were like you know REM without the weird obtuse lyrics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, basically it's it's as if, uh, I mean, look, Denisio and bon John, uh, John Bon Jovi are peers, uh, yeah. both grew up in Jersey and all that, that they actually kind of share this kind of, uh, that almost this, not they're not sentimental guys, but they're not cheesy either. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I think that in some ways, you know, Denisio and, and Bon Jovi have more in common than you would think as well. I said mm-hmm. Denizio's just gifted. I mean, he was gifted. Yeah. Well, was. <laughs> well, he, he was gifted. Uh, yeah. And again, Green Thoughts is where it, it, the gifts show up the most prominently. Okay. Well, I think we've all come to the end of this exciting 17th journey <laughs> of the yeah. Curmudgeon Rock Report. Yes. Yeah, it is 17th. Uh, we are very, very proud uh, in this podcast space. If you get to uh, uh, 17, that means you've persevered. That means you love what you're doing. And it means that you're dedicated to getting better. When And I would dare, dare say that we, we have gotten better. We have. Uh, yes, yeah. we have. Uh, never, never give up. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we are the... We are the uh, podcast, the rock nerd podcast for the common man. Uh, you know, ab- <laughs> and speak, speak, speaking of the common man, 
Next episode, we're going to take some shots at some common men, and that's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voting committee. Yes. I'm pissed off. Yes. <laughs> the curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.